Hello everyone and welcome to part two of our Salem Witch Trials episode. And I'm glad that you're back as we are talking about what do, what, what do we make of all this? What do we make of the trial? So if you, if you didn't listen to part one, I highly suggest that you go back and listen to it because I walked down kind of all the events that take place in 1692 as well as what follows in 1693. Uh, and then the things that that happen after that. There's actually some really beautiful stuff that happens in the local church there in Salem Village uh, during the late 1690s and heading into the early 1700s that people rarely ever talk about. And then uh, also, you know, historical uh, movement regarding the witch trials continues all the way up until a couple of years ago in, in 2021, where they're still clearing names of wrongdoing in this thing. And so, what I just want to talk about as we get into part two is what do we make of this? What do we make of this? Uh, so typically, here are the theories that are thrown out there. Number one, it was all hysteria, right? It was all hysteria. They ate something bad. And then uh, think people got caught up in the Puritan fervor, okay? They're looking in the, for the devil in every bush. So it was all hysteria. That's one theory. A second theory that people have is that this took place because there was some sort of a vacuum of leadership. Okay, the revoking of the charter combined with ugly church politics and family feuds, and, and this is what really led to this debacle. People being suspicious of outsiders, being suspicious of beggars, you know, people like Sarah Good, people like Sarah Osborne, people like Tachuba, who is... Uh, an immigrant working as a slave uh, in the household of the Reverend Samuel uh, Paris. So I, I, I think that that's pretty good theory, <laughs> that that certainly played into it. The fact that they couldn't actually have a trial, the fact that there wasn't really a court to hold a trial in, the fact that there was this legal limbo that existed because of the revoking of the charter... I, I certainly think that played into it. A third working theory is that there truly is demonic activity in the Salem village at the time. That these these girls are acting odd and, and they're crawling under chairs and they're they're contorting their bodies and they're claiming to see these specters because they really are being afflicted by demons as a result of witchcraft. Okay? And then the fourth theory that we could have is that maybe it's a combination of all three of these things. Maybe there is real demonic activity that is going on. Uh, maybe there's a vacuum of leadership, and maybe there is an odd social dynamic, and, and, and there also was a wildfire of hysteria that kind of broke out from a, a source point that actually was real demonic activity. And, and then you get, you know, the witch trials. I don't know, okay? I, we, we really, I think, should be careful about wanting to be too dogmatic about what happened in Salem. I, I don't know. I can't say for sure that there, there was not something really happening there, okay? And, and so that kind of, let, let me get into lessons we can learn from this. Here's number one. Along the lines of, I'm not sure if there really was demonic activity or not, I'm going to say that supernatural belief cannot just be called gullibility. Supernatural belief cannot just be called gullibility. We can't just wave the hand at this as Christian people, right? Because we have the supernatural in our worldview. 
way back in 1923, a book was written, so 100 years ago, by J. Gresham Machen that's uh, called Christianity and Liberalism. And he basically is arguing that there is no liberal Christianity, that progressive Christianity or liberal uh, Christianity is actually a false religion. It's, it is a religion in and of itself that is a false religion. And what they want to do, liberal Christianity, when I say liberal, I'm not talking about like Republican, Democrat liberal, I'm talking about theologically liberal. They want to, uh, to, to take Christianity and just kind of like zap all of the, um, all of the supernatural out of it. And so the idea that Jesus is going around and he is laying hands on people and he is healing them or that he's even healing them with his words, like miles away from them, uh, or, or that someone could reach out and touch him and be healed, this sort of stuff is it's ludicrous because in the liberal worldview, the postmodern worldview, it's all about naturalism. It, you got to be able to see it, taste it, touch it, Right, measure it in the lab. Otherwise, it, it doesn't exist. And few Americans, it seems, really believe in the supernatural until the government tells us we got aliens flying around above us, and then all of a sudden everybody's in. But uh, certainly, few few people believe in the supernatural in terms of God ordained miracles, like the Son of God, um, the Son of God, you know, coming to Earth, born of a virgin. Right, like that—that that is miraculous. The Son of God dying on a cross, atoning for the sin of humanity, and rising again three days later is miraculous. The Son of God ascending to heaven is miraculous. The apostles continuing to perform miracles with apostolic authority in the place of the Son of God after his ascension, empowered by the Spirit of God, is miraculous. All of these things do not fit within the framework of the postmodern mindset. And so the postmodern Christian, who is buying into postmodernism and trying to marry that to their Christianity, wants to write supernaturalism completely out of their worldview. And so they are always going to chalk what we're seeing, up, uh, what we're seeing in the Salem Witch Trials up to just religious craziness, Right? Like Ben Franklin had an aunt and uncle who were involved as accusers in these trials, and that made him very sarcastic and very, um, you know, very critical of the supernatural throughout his life. But if you do that, if if you eliminate all supernaturalism, you cut off your nose to spite your face, as the old saying goes, uh, because what you end up with is a deficient worldview that is unable to explain existence itself because existence is a miracle. Everybody is always says, well, life is a miracle. Life itself is a miracle. The miracle of life, right? Even unbelievers recognize this. You have no way to explain the existence of creation, the existence of the universe, if not for the supernatural if not for uh, a God speaking it into existence. There has to be a beginning to it. And the order of it, the fact that it is not chaotic, the fact that the entire universe is not in legal limbo, right, is evidence to a, a creator. Uh, and so if you try to write the supernatural out, you're going to lose all of that. You're going to 
your worldview is going to become purely naturalistic. We're all just bags of chemicals banging into each other. The universe itself is eternal. You got no other option than, than to prescribe to that. And then once you do that, you really have no basis for morality. So supernatural belief cannot just be called gullibility. And I don't think we can just wave the hand at all of this. Now, uh, I do think we should be pretty suspicious of the whole thing. It started with children. Okay. Uh, outsiders are being accused first. Like when that's when it starts with kids and they start pointing the finger and at, at at the weirdest people, so to speak, <laughs> right? Those that society around them is dear uh, uh, has deemed to be uh, the weirdest. I think that you have to pause. I think you have to pause. I think that the way history, even those that were close, like people who lived it. Okay, condemned it. When history is this consistently condemning of it, even all the way up to the generation that was involved, right? Because you have in you have Ann Putnam Jr. like standing up saying, I want to join this church, but in order to join this church, I gotta say sorry for my involvement and all this junk that took place 15 years ago. That right there makes me say, I'm going to look at this and go, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And I tend to think that it may have been the the perfect situation for hysteria to break out. And I don't think that, to, to come to my second point, okay, I don't think that we need to vilify the Puritans because of this. I don't think that we should say, well, this happened because there was a vacuum in leadership and it was the horrible theology of the Puritans. This is what people do when they are trying to blame complementarianism for all like sexual abuse in the church and for uh, for any sort of a, uh, mistreatment of women in the church. And they say, well, it's, it's the fault of complementarianism. It's people who think that men and women are equal but have different roles. It's people who are not egalitarians who don't just say that men and women are same, okay? That there's sameness. Uh, and, and so they will point to, to all the abuses that take place in complementarian churches and say it's because of complementarianism. Well, what about all the churches where sexual abuse is taking place and they're not complementarian? Is it, that, is it complementarianism's fault there? So we can't just like blame Puritan theology just because the Puritans uh, absolutely had a strong belief that the devil was seeking to destroy you every day and that every day was a spiritual battle for your soul. A lot of people look at that and go, oh, that created all sorts of supernatural superstition and religious hysteria and religious fervor that translated into the horror of these trials. You combine that with the, the, the legal limbo and, and, and you combine that with, uh, with you know some family feuds that are going on in the social situation and boom, you got it. And, and because of that, we, we really, we shouldn't, we should toss out the Puritans, right? Here's the thing about Puritans. They like brighting, uh, painting their houses in, in, in bright colors. They love talking about heaven. They loved having babies. And you know what you got to do to have babies? I think you know. Uh, they dressed in the clothes of the times at times. Not all of them, but like John Owen w was famous for walking around the campus of Oxford in his 
leather Spanish boots and his powdered wig and and his uh, patterned clothing. And, and you know, he, he was a man of his times. Their writings are some of the greatest treasures that Christendom has ever produced, and we shouldn't allow what took place in a period of about 13 crazy months in uh, the Salem village in 1692 and 1693 to poison the well of Puritanism in that we reject it for all of history. It's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. We shouldn't do that. We, and we, we shouldn't misconstrue the Puritans and we don't need to toss out Puritan theology because of this. Uh, so even though we might look at the trials side-eyed and we might go, yeah, I don't think it was good. Definitely not good when you have the people who were involved in it saying it wasn't. When you have a really faithful pastor like Joseph Green, who's coming along uh, afterward and he's putting the church back together and he seems to be doing it and reconciling the church from a place of, hey guys, this was wrong. People were wrong on both sides. We all need to forgive one another. Yes, we're going to look at it side-eyed and suspiciously and say it wasn't good and it wasn't Puritanism's best moment. It wasn't Christianity's best moment. It wasn't this Christian town's best moment for sure. And it's horrible what happened to the people that uh, were executed and the people who were imprisoned and the people who were accused. All of that. It's absolutely terrible. We can say all of those things, but it doesn't mean we need to toss out Puritanism. Uh, that's absolutely ridiculous. I'm a Baptist, and, and some Puritans beat on my Baptist brothers uh, as this country was forming and beginning. But I don't toss out Puritans because of that, because as a Baptist, I know that's where I came from. That's my roots. I also think that we need to learn that the Word of God has to be superior to experience. That, that spectral witness stuff was the biggest problem in all of this. It drove the train of execution. Exodus 22, 18 says, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. Uh, Leviticus 20, 27, uh, A man that is a wizard shall be put to death. Um, it's Old Testament. How come Paul in Ephesus in Acts 19 didn't say, Hey, we need to put these people practicing witchcraft to death. How come Peter doesn't want Simon the sorcerer put to death in Acts chapter 8? It's because those were Old Testament laws for the Old Testament theocracy of Israel, and we are no longer under the law, but under grace as New Covenant believers. We have no excuse to sin, but in the New Covenant, there's mercy for the penitent, right? There's, there's mercy for those that repent. And the fact that spectral evidence ruled over like all of these examinations and these considerations and these trials, experience became more important than New Covenant mercy, to these people who certainly were pointing to the scriptures as they were holding these trials. Um, and experience became more important than, than uh, what the word of, of God, uh, you know, says, what the word of God instructs. And so Christians were not dealing with one another in a Christian manner uh, on this, it, it, it became a very hysterical situation, and the Word of God became secondary to the experience of even children, and people died because of it. When we do this in our own lives, it's detrimental. It's why when we go out and witness, we can't start with, well, 
Uh, I believe Jesus is Lord because he saved me on July 14th, 1999, and I, I'm going to witness to you and tell you my testimony. Well, that's great, but I, I, it's, it's awesome. I love hearing people's testimonies, okay? Uh, but my experience, my testimony, like Mormons have testimonies. Jehovah's Witnesses have testimonies. One, the first thing I ask every Jehovah's Witness that I meet is, uh, you know, hi, are you guys Jehovah's Witnesses? Of course, you know they are. They have the, the little stand with the literature out and all that. Are you guys Jehovah's Witnesses? And they say yes. So that's the first question I ask. The second question I ask is, and, and the first real question, I suppose, is, so, so what made you become a Jehovah's Witness? And do you know what they respond with? A testimony. A testimony. Uh, one of the Jehovah's Witnesses I talked to recently at Yorktown Beach, she said to me, uh, I was really confused. I had just had kids. I was lonely. Uh, I had a husband who was uh, abusive toward me and left me, and I needed someone. And I turned to, you know, I found I found the hope that I was looking for in the Kingdom Hall, essentially. Uh, and then the other woman, she said, I was raised in it. And my parents taught me, and I saw their exemplary life of faith. And they had a testimony. Just, you know, for their their fake Jesus who can't save, who is a lesser God, who, um, you know, is created by Yahweh. They, they got a testimony about him. Their Jesus who died on a stake. Their Jesus who came back in 1914, invisibly. They've got a testimony about him. So, there's got to be more than that. And as Christians, what do we do? We point to the Word of God, right? When I'm doubting, or when I'm confused, or when I need discernment, where do I go? I go to the Word of God. I go to the objective truth outside of myself. I go to the Word of God. I, I do not go to my feelings or, or my thoughts or my opinions. I shouldn't, because I don't find comfort there, right? I need to go to the Word of God to find my comfort, to find my counsel, to find my convictions, my beliefs, my boundaries, all of those things I find in the Word. And it certainly just seems like these people, even, even people like Cotton and Increase Mather, who, who, again, prominent names in Puritan New England, lost their way, lost their way when it came to these trials and dealing with these trials. And it seems there were efforts by, by, by good men to throw their bodies in the way and say, hey, we shouldn't, maybe the spectral evidence stuff shouldn't be primary, maybe let's not make this primary. But they didn't want to speak too, too uh, firmly about it, did they? I mean, they said, eh, but we'll leave it up to the magistrates. And it wasn't until public opi opinion really turns on the trials that people become adamant that this stuff needs to end and the spectral evidence is no good. And, and part of the reason I think people didn't want to speak up, and maybe I could add a, a fourth lesson I didn't write down, part of the reason people didn't want to speak up is because they didn't want to be accused of being a witch. <laughs> right? I mean, think about Giles Corey, who I talked about in, in the first part of the episode. He says, my wife's a witch. I think she might be a witch. Then he says, no, I take it back. She's not a witch. She's not a witch. And then they say, you're a witch, right? Other people are seeing that. The Mathers are seeing that. Everybody's seeing that. You have to imagine that with the hysteria, there was a fear that you don't want to be called out. You want to be accused. As I was listening to some of these podcasts about this, I felt overwhelmed by imagining myself living in the village. You can't go anywhere, okay? Uh, it's not safe to go anywhere. It's 1692, okay? Like, 
This is the undeveloped new world. And there are dangers outside of the village. So you, you don't just willy-nilly go outside the village. You certainly don't willy-nilly go outside of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. And this is your, the, your source of life, you know, your way of life, everything. It's all, it's all there. It's all connected to this village. So you are there. You're going to be stuck there. It is a, it, it's, a, it's a basin, if you will, a social basin. Like you're not getting out of there. Uh, and, and so a lot of people think that that is part of the reason the storm, the tempest, uh, was so strong and that, that the thunder and the lightning and the rain was so heavy with the witch trials is because it was in this little kind of like social box. It, was, it, it, it all happened in, in, this, uh, in this bowl, if you will. It was contained and, and the fire burned hot within this house. But you can't leave there. And you start hearing people being accused. You're scared, first of all, because you're thinking on one hand, you're like, is this real? Like, is this real? On the other hand, you're thinking like, well, if it is real, I don't want my kids to be infested by demons. If this is real, I, I don't want my home to have specters in it. On the other hand, you're like, well, this isn't real, and I think this is all ridiculous. I, I don't want to be accused and say something. They're like, oh, well, you're waving the hand at it because you're a witch. You're a wizard. <laughs> I, I don't want to be take a chance that, that I could get involved in this. So what are you going to do? You're going to keep your head down. I, I really thought about it. I was like, I think I would tell my family, like, let's just stay inside. You go out to get food and water. Stay inside. I mean, this sounds awful, right? Just the paranoia that must have been existing at the time. So I think about that, and 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 that that's going to temper my my fourth lesson that I think we could learn here. But I'll go ahead and say it anyways, which is you know the fear of man is strong and it must be overcome, right? They needed a strong voice, whether it be one of the Mathers or one of the magistrates or Governor Phipps, uh, whoever. To say this is not okay and this must stop and this is going to stop. We're not doing this, okay? Or even you know, Reverend Samuel Paris himself say this is this has gotten out of control. This needs to end. This needs to stop. But nobody seemed willing to step up and say that. Nobody seemed willing to put the pedal to the metal and just reject it outright uh, and just say enough with the specter spectral evidence. But I'm going to temper it, though, because like I said, I just can't imagine being alive during that time, and you're just you're torn between probably two opinions of this could be real theologically, right? There's, there's room for this to be real, but I also am, am detecting some things here that are alarming socially. It makes me think maybe this is all just hysteria, but nobody wants to speak on it because you don't end up pressed to death like Giles Corey. God rest his soul. So... There you go. Um, those are my thoughts on the Salem Witch Trial. I don't really have too many thoughts beyond that. It was really interesting to look into. Uh, I was glad that our, our listener uh, encouraged us to do that. And so a fun, creepy episode of, of Pilgrim Devotion. Uh, we close with our, our questions, our soul care questions. Christian, how is your soul? How is your soul? I know this has been a, a bit of an interesting episode uh, and maybe not one that is the most spiritually provoking, but maybe it is. Maybe some of the things we've talked about here in part two have provoked you in some way. How are you doing? Secondly, how is God's grace at work in your life? And then how would you like his grace to be at work in your life? 
If you think about these questions, you want to talk to a pastor, please reach out to us at connect at seafordbaptist.com. We will be back with you almost immediately, and uh, we want to put you in touch with pastoral care. We want to give you pastoral care. All right. It was great to be with everyone for a two-part episode this week. We'll be back next week with our Reformation Day episode as we prepare for October the 31st, celebrating the 95 Theses being nailed to the door. And uh, and certainly in terms of pop history, it's the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. So looking forward to that. We'll be back with that uh, next week. But until then, keep living the pilgrim life, representing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. 